That's right, General Quarters, and this is Battleground. Today is Friday, August 28th. We are 67 days away from the election, and wow, holy shit, what a convention this week, last night, home run, fireworks. Uh, You know what, put a fork in it, Democrats are done, they're a disgrace, disaster. The president hammered, hammered his accomplishments with a vision for the country. I think we have seen the rebirth of Ronald Reagan, just absolutely amazing, unless you are anti-American, treasonous, or some type of radical Marxist, you have to love what you saw this week. You have to love the vision for America. You have to love the direction our country is going. Today, we have an absolute stud with us. Um, I don't know if I can introduce him. I don't know if that, if I can even come close to all his accomplishments. I'm going to let him do it. Um, but he's probably one of the top guys in the world in, uh, in nuclear stuff, in the Iran stuff. He can tell us a little bit about what that stuff means. The uh, Iran deal, nuclear deal that the Obama administration uh, passed and, and, and luckily our president canceled out of. Georgetown professor, uh, Marine colonel, uh, man, uh, partner in a law firm, former JAG. I don't know if they call him JAGs in the Marine Corps, um, but he's a stud. David Jonas, welcome to Battleground. I know you've heard that jingle before. I don't know if that gave you goosebumps, but man, all hands on battle stations, 67 days away, man. Take it away. I loved it, Ivan. I, I spent some time on ship on the USS Okinawa and the USS Tower. I loved hearing that sound. I loved being deployed at sea with the Marine Corps, and uh, that brought me back. Thanks. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, like I said, what an incredible week. What a complete contrast from the sorry, gloom and doom, dismal performance that we saw last week. And what a way to close a convention. I got to tell you, I'm a political junkie. I've been following them all. And I think this is the best ever. I was so disappointed that we weren't going to be able to have a real convention. But, you know, now I'm like, wow, we should do this every single time. This is amazing, Uh, especially that backdrop with the White House, you know, the front view of the mall and the Washington Memorial. It was just fascinating, powerful. Uh, I I think it really set the tone. Like I said, unless you're a traitor, unless you hate America, unless you're a Marxist radical who who should be seeking psychiatric mental health, you know, help, you know, and and staying away from politics, you gotta love what you you saw this week. It was gotta love the president's speech last night. Um, How do you how do you disagree with somebody? that just loves their country that I thought the whole thing was great. And I thought uh, Kim Klasik, uh, I just absolutely adored her. She is oh, wow. tremendous. She gave a great, a great talk. And she is, uh, she spoke nothing but the truth. Yeah, Kim is awesome. I love Kim. Uh, man, uh, I, I expect a lot of great things from Kim, you know, in the future. There were so many great speakers this week. Uh, you know, man, uh, the list goes on. Maximo Alvarez talking about Cuba and Fidel Castro. And, you know, and I can relate to that because I've, you know, I've been traveling and, and dealing with Latin America since, you know, since the 80s. And 
you know, uh, I told you off camera, I've had, uh, you know, close encounters with uh, members of the Shining Path and uh, some of those terrorist organizations. And I see the same thing happening in our streets, same thing happening here, how the same handbook, the same strategy applies. They take over academia, they take over the schools, start indoctrinating kids. Then they start these peaceful protests. Then they start rioting and eventually start executing people, which you're already seeing during these riots. They actually have assaulted and killed people. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're really, uh, I, I think, at the edge of that. But David, Colonel, um, like I said, you're a stud. Nobody really gets this stuff. Everybody says, yeah, it was a bad deal, bad deal. Uh, obviously, John Kerry says it was a great deal. Obama says it was a great deal. So it's got to be bad. And, uh, you know, this situation with Kerry going behind the administration's back, continuing to talk to the Iranians. You know, I know this whole Logan Act thing uh, hasn't been used in forever, but they try to pull it on, you know, on General Flynn. Um, maybe we need to pull that on them as well. But, you know, we'll put that as a side note. If you want to touch it, go for it. But Talk to us about this Iran deal. Why was it bad? What was in it? What was real? What's fake? Um, and, uh, and, and what should we expect from sure. U.S. policy towards Iran? Sure. I think the, goal, the goals for the deal were noble. I think that the idea was to, uh, I mean, everybody knows that Iran was sprinting to a bomb and uh, that that's been a goal of theirs for a long time. Uh, they, they covered up evidence with, uh, with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, for over 20 years about a nuclear program that they had, all of which they had to report to the International Atomic Energy Agency, of which they're a member. And that is, is, is an organization that they, by the way, had a legally binding agreement with in order to report their nuclear activities, and they failed to do so. So um, the interesting thing is, of course, the, uh, the United Nations via the UN Security Council can make Security Council resolutions. And under the UN Charter, that uh, has the, the force and effect of international law. So one of those UN Security Council resolutions, 1929, mandated that Iran not enrich any uranium. And of course, they had been doing it for years, uh, covertly. So they had been already in violation of international law. So it's, it's kind of uh, amazing that we would then turn around and reward them for violating all these international uh, uh, dictates by the UN Security Council with an agreement that allowed them to continue to enrich uranium because enrichment of uranium is one of the two pathways to a nuclear weapon. The other way being uh, reprocessing of spent fuel, which will give you plutonium that's a much more complicated way to get to a nuclear weapon. The easiest way is through enriching uranium, and that's the, the path that the, uh, the Iranians were apparently taking. That's amazing. And what, what about all this cash that the Obama administration flew over in planes and pallets? And there's some arguing about that. I'm, you know, I, I've read enough about it, but I don't think everybody really understands that. Um, is that something you can explain? Just, you know, it is what it is, right? But It, it really is. I mean, yeah. it's kind of unbelievable. And given the, uh, again, you know, the, the Obama administration, this is one of the things that really confuses me about the whole deal. The Obama administration loves the UN. They love uh, 
international law. They love all multilateralism and globalism. And yet here you have a country like Iran that did not observe any of these norms, did not observe international law, did not follow UN Security Council resolutions, and yet they're rewarding them. So it's, it's very, you know, why would they do that? And to give them cash, and of course the executive branch normally can't just give cash, you know, it has to be approved by Congress, but apparently it only works one way. When the Democrats do something, it's apparently fine, but if the Republicans do it, it's, it's the worst thing in the world. And of course the, the Democrats uh, have the media behind them. Uh, so there's, so the, most people don't ever hear about the legality. Yeah, it's their super PAC. They have a super PAC, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the propaganda machine, fake new CNN and the rest of the clown show. Yeah. It is. Uh, my, I've never met Chris Plant, but on his show, he always says uh, the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself uh, because indeed they're, they're, they're one and the same. And the, uh, it's a shame that they don't do any reporting. The idea of pallets of cash being given in order to hope that Iran or to encourage Iran to observe a deal or stick with a deal is just remarkable. So let me, let me just get, uh, get back to your, uh, your initial question. With, with problems with this deal. The, the problem with a, with a state like Iran that is seeking a nuclear weapon is that it's not like you know exactly where they are in terms of their progress. In other words, look, we spend billions and billions on intelligence, right? And in 98, we had no idea that India and Pakistan were gonna test a nuclear weapon until they did. And uh, I was the nuclear nonproliferation planner for the Joint Chief of Staff at the time. And I was uh, plucked out of the swimming pool at the Pentagon at the time to go brief the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff on what had just happened. I was thrilled that his first question was, was it legal that they, they, they detonated a nuclear weapon? And of course it was, because they're not members of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty where states swear, unless they're part of the, the, the five states that are authorized to have nuclear weapons, that's the US, the UK, France, China, and Russia. They swear not to make nuclear weapons. Iran, of course, is a member of that treaty. They have sworn not to produce nuclear weapons, and yet they've, they've done so. So the, the fact is that you don't know that a state has a nuclear weapon until they do, until they test it. Um, and, and India and Pakistan, of course, made that very clear when they when they tested and you know, we were surprised. Uh, obviously our intelligence agencies were surprised. Uh, our intelligence agencies seemed to be able to produce nothing about North Korea or Iran. It's fairly, fairly remarkable. The most effective intelligence agency in that regard seems to be Israel, yeah. particularly with regard to Iran. But uh, typically in terms of intelligence and nuclear weapons uh, manufacturing or other military capabilities, it's, it's the regional countries who care the most because even though Iran calls us the great Satan and Israel the little Satan, Israel's closer to Iran and they've, they've threatened to wipe out Israel, which, which by the way is, uh, would, would, would contravene the genocide treaty, which is, Iran has also signed, and yet they're threatening to wipe out the entire nation. And the thing everyone needs to realize is that Israel's gotta be a lot more, has gotta have a lower tripwire than we do on something like an enemy state with a nuclear weapon. I hate to say this, but I often do. Uh, if a nuclear weapon was detonated in America, one, two, or even three, it would be horrible. It would be hundreds of thousands of deaths. It, it would be terrible. It would be catastrophic beyond imagination. But quite frankly, the United States would continue as a country 
we'd be able to strike back. We'd still have a lot of military power. Not so with Israel. Three nuclear weapons detonated in Israel, and Israel would be gone. Yep. Yep. But um, <laughs> I guess as a sidebar here, um, but Israel could defend itself against against Iran, don't you think? Absolutely, no question about it. They've got the they've got the most capable military in the entire Middle East. Uh, that's why we're seeing states uh, that are that are finally moving towards realpolitik, and uh, I think we are going to see, in addition to the UAE, more states yeah. signing, uh, you know, normalizing relations. And Saudi just, Arabia come on board? Do you think? I think Saudi Arabia will. Yes, I do, because they're all they're all scared of Iran. Iran clearly wants to be the hegemon in the region. Yep. They threaten everyone with their terrorism, with their with their missiles. Uh, you know, they're, they're and, and make no mistake. You know, they launched the satellite in April, and that that's not to launch a satellite so they can have GPS. It's so they they can miniaturize a nuclear weapon and mount a nuke on it and hit us. They can already reach Israel, so. They, they don't need an intercontinental ballistic missile right. to hit Israel. They've already got that capability. And, and that's a great point that you bring on my ICBMs, right? Um, I know we don't want to deep dive into this too much, but uh, China and Israel are in conversations about strategic alliance. Part of that strategic alliance has said that the Chinese are going to provide ICBMs, right? In exchange for really cheap, cheap embargoed oil. Um, that can't be a good thing for, for the region, can't be a good thing for us, it can't be a good thing for Israel. Indeed, it cannot be. It's, uh, it's curious. I, I actually draw a lot of analogies between China's conduct now and Russia's conduct, certainly during the Cold War, but also now, because it seems that, uh, you know, let's face it, those states are not our friends. No. There's about, in addition to China and Russia, and of course, it's curious, the international states that don't follow international law. China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Syria, uh, are all, of course, not our friends and, and, are, and all seek to do us harm. China and Russia like to do anything they can to poke us in the nose or in the eye. What I think it's designed to do is keep us bogged down in that region. I think that China and Russia both believe that the more that we are tied down in that region with assets, equipment, and personnel, the more easily they will be able to do what they want to do, which is to attack Taiwan or to attack the Baltic states uh, for Russia. And we won't have the capability. Remember, we used to be able to have the capability to fight two major regional conflicts, MRCs. We can no longer do that. We really can only fight a major war in one theater right now. So if we are bogged down in the Middle East, it frees up Russia and China and perhaps North Korea well, and not just that. I mean, our own backyard, Western Hemisphere, we look at uh, Latin America. I don't know how well versed you are. I would imagine you know enough to be dangerous, but you know, Iran, China and, 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 and Russia are in our backyards or in Venezuela. I mean, when Chavez was still alive and president, he had his consul general in, uh, in Damascus giving visas to Hamas, Hezbollah and the Iranians, um, you know, coming into, coming into the continent, getting a uh, Venezuelan identities and roaming the and, and roaming roaming roam, roaming the earth, right? And and many of them have come into the U.S. and a lot of them have been playing this uh, you know this drug game with the cartels and and flipping money and and, and increasing their cash flow and it's you know it, it's just a very very dangerous you know proposition that's going on there and um, that's why I agree with the president is we need to get the hell out of there and we need to make sure we secure 
our side of the world because uh, it's almost like Ronald Reagan all over again, isn't it? Like it, it almost feels like that where, you know, Latin America hasn't really been paid attention since Reagan. That's a great point, Ivan. And by the way, just as an aside, I got to tell you, 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 you sound like my good friend, David Webb, uh, you know, in terms of your, your voice, it, 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 <laughs> you've heard him. He's great. Well, I, I got a face for, I got a face for, for radio, man. What can I tell you? <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to see me. So I better have a voice. Same here. Same here. Uh, but let me just pick up on that point a little bit because it's a great point. And if you think about Russia and China doing things in Venezuela and Latin America, that fits in with that same strategy I was just talking about. They can have us devote more assets to Latin America and to the Middle East and elsewhere. Again, it frees up North Korea to do what they want, frees up uh, China to do what it wants and Russia to do what it wants. And if you notice what's going on with the South China Sea right now, with Chinese building up those islands, uh, fortifying them, militarizing them. Uh, they've got all kinds of missiles along their coast. They may well move on Taiwan. And the question is, what, what could we really do about it if they moved? Unless we park right in front of them. No. That's right. I mean, as you know, uh, three or four times historically now, we've sent carrier battle groups uh, in the Taiwan Strait when China had threatened to move. Uh, the problem is now they have so many missiles there and carrier killer missiles. Uh, and let's face it, if they destroyed a U.S. carrier with five or 6,000 U.S. personnel on it, military personnel, we'd have no choice but to go to war. I mean, yep. we, there'd just be no way around that. So it's- Who wins that, by the way? Between, we do, right? I'm sorry? Who wins that war? We would. It, I think we would right now. Devastating, but we would crush them. Right? We, we would right now. Uh, and after all, remember, the, there, there is another good point about having been involved in wars as we have now so long uh you know just like there's nothing like playing a real game uh the military fighting a real war helps helps a military get ready for the next war it's yeah. it's it's better than just a an exercise and so yeah, it's battle tested right it's battle tested so that's right and china has not been in a in a real military conflict now since the 60s or 70s except for occasional brush wars and over Kashmir and a little bit of shooting here and there but they have not been in a real war for a long time, really, really, almost since uh, the Korean War with us in 1950. Yeah, that's amazing. So what's next with Iran? What's next with the region? What, what do we do? Well, it's- Is there a way to control these, these people? I mean, what's uh, the current policy? On the, uh, regarding the Iran nuclear deal? Yeah. Well, right now, of course we pulled out of it and, and it was the right thing to do. Uh, again, I, a couple other reasons I meant to note, uh, you know, it should have been a treaty and it wasn't. Uh, it, it was uh, just really a handshake agreement that Iran never signed. And yet, of course, the, uh, the Obama administration has, well, former Obama administration has been critical of us for pulling out of a treaty. When, of course, they specifically didn't negotiate it as a treaty because they knew they couldn't get it through the Senate. And that is not a reason, by the way, a lawful reason to not put what should have been a treaty through the Senate. Yep. And the interesting thing is that the strongest language in that agreement is in the least binding part. I mean, if you think, why would we do an Iran agreement? It was to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. So the, in a treaty or, or an international agreement, um, there is, there's really two parts. There's a, there's a preamble, which is not legally binding or not binding. 
And then there's an operative part, which both sides agree to follow. And of course, the United States observes even non-binding deals, non-legally binding deals, but Iran doesn't even observe its binding deals. So the fact that they put the language about Iran not pursuing a nuclear weapon in the preamble, in the non-binding part of this non-legally binding agreement that Iran didn't even sign, I think tells you something. And if Iran won't observe its it's uh, binding political agreement, legal agreements that won't observe a political agreement. But to your question about now, what do we do now? Um, it, it's, it's very difficult to say. Um, President Trump did the right thing by pulling out of this agreement. No question about it. Uh, it, 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 uh, it absolutely was the right thing. You know, America has had a policy that both administrations have shared for over 50 years and it's called the the gold standard for a cooperation, nuclear cooperation with another country, where we we will cooperate and and export and and be involved with other states uh, and help their nuclear, their civil nuclear programs, but we won't permit them to enrich or reprocess uh, uranium because that's the path to a nuclear weapon. That's what's so remarkable about about this deal that it allowed Iran to continue enrichment. And of course, after after the agreement sunset, it would have allowed them to, it would have removed all limits and allowed them to pursue a nuclear weapon. So what do we do now, now that we have been, now that we have withdrawn from the treaty, do we have any anything we can do? Well, there is a, a provision called SNAP Act in the agreement that allows, uh, uh, if Iran is violating the deal, allows a party to, uh, get the original sanctions that were on Iran to snap back. I, I've always considered that a, a kind of a pipe dream because first of all, it, it, and this was another flaw in the agreement. In other words, there are all kinds of things that a state can do to violate an agreement. If, if they, I mean, technically you can be out of compliance with an agreement if a single security camera that is there for observation uh, is covered or if it fails or something like that. That's obviously a technical non-compliance. Nobody's going to go to general quarters, as you would say with your show, yep. over a minor technical agreement. But it's another matter when a state is, of course, literally violating the agreement, keeping things hidden, pursuing a nuclear weapon. But to get the agreement to snap back after, after the, the sanctions were already released, is very hard to do. And of course, since we have withdrawn from the agreement, while we are saying that we have the ability to, uh, to allow the, the, uh, the to push for the snap back sanctions because we were a, an original party to the agreement, I do think that uh, it's a little bit too cute by half in some ways to, to argue for snap back sanctions when we are not no longer a party to the agreement. And of course, the Security Council uh, apparently uh, would not agree with us. We, we pushed that at the Security Council and they, they, the votes went considerably against us. And of course, that's no surprise. I mean, Russia and China are never going to support us on something like that. And, you know, most states just abstained because, uh, you know, they didn't, they perhaps thought it was a curious position for us to be taking also. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you're giving the house away and uh, and you're not getting anything in return. It was uh, it was just absolutely uh, mind boggling. Uh, 
never really understood what the uh, what the philosophy was behind that, other than, you know, the Obama administration's appeasement policy towards that region, right? Um, I think that was that was it in a nutshell. That was probably the uh, icing on the cake at that point. But um, I'm glad we're 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 past that. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, you know, 67 days away from an election is, is it can be an eternity. But, you know, looking at the direction things are going, obviously, the uh, Democrats had a horrible week last week. Um, I was kidding around about it and, and saying, you know, I don't think the argument's going to be, you know, how much of a bounce the Democrats get, but how many, how much of a bounce does Trump get? And, and he got a bounce, right? He ended up, you know, polling at 52% approval you know, right after the uh, Democrats convention. And I think he's probably going to get a bounce out of that. So if you're a betting man, you would, you know, the election was today or tomorrow, you would say, you know, Trump is going to win, you know, with, with a massive landslide, but we don't know that. Um, But if he does win, you know, which I, I, I I hope he does. And I expect him to, um, what's the path? What's the policy? I mean, what do we do? because it's clearly a rogue nation. It's clearly a sponsor of terrorism. You know, we talked uh, briefly and, and it doesn't get any, any, any kind of play anywhere in the media about, you know, Iran's uh, playing in Latin America. I mean, you can Google it. I mean, we know Hamas has been down there playing in drugs. We know Hezbollah has been, been in there. The Iranians are in there, you know, and not just Venezuela, because once they get into Venezuela, they've been roaming around you know, the entire region. Um, so they're not our friends. They're already here. Um, they, they're, they're continuing to fund, you know, other groups that are attacking us or our allies. What do you do? I mean, do you just, you know, do you just hit them hard? Or, I mean, you know, no, nobody's going to look fond of the United States for starting a war and in the Middle East again. And I don't think we want to get sucked into another one after 20 years there. I don't think there's an appetite for that. And, you know, everybody wants to go back pre-COVID economy, right? That's right. Of course, that's a great question and a great observation. I think it's, I think it's tricky. I think, uh, I think there would be some countries that would be very happy to see us invade Iran. Uh, and, and by the way, quite frankly, Russia, <clears throat> Russia and China among them, because we would be totally tied down. I mean, again, a land war in Iran is, is just silly. So that, that's totally off the table. But, um, you know, and, and, and to attack their nuclear uh, sites is, is also tricky because they've learned from Israel taking out uh, Iraq's Os- Osirak reactor in 1981 and recently taking out Syria's Al-Kabar reactor in 2007. Uh, You know, Israel's not afraid to do this stuff, but Iran is a little bit of a trickier situation in terms of their their nuclear program, which is dispersed, uh, hardened, uh, deeply buried. Uh, They have air defense, you know, what country has has air defense around a civil nuclear program, right? Uh, Only only Iran. So again, that that tells you something. But in terms of what uh, you know, what we do now, it's interesting because watching North Korea, the Trump administration has done exactly the right thing: slowly ratcheting up the pressure and keeping the pressure on. And the the Kim administrations, uh, you know, Kim, this Kim, that Kim, the other Kim, since 1950, have all gone through the same playbook of of uh, threats, misbehavior, 
Then we give them something and they behave for a while, then they ratchet back up. Uh, they are at a point where, where, where they could really be forced into something because we've not given them anything. Now, Iran is in the same boat. They are hurting right now. Their economy is, is, is reeling. They've got inflation problems. The, the, the populace is unhappy. Uh, they, the populace has been really annoyed since the shoot down of that Ukrainian airliner. Uh, the, the, they can't get basic goods. They can't even produce electricity. So there was an excellent article in the Wall Street Journal this week by Mark Dubowitz, uh, the Foundation for, uh, for Defense and Democracy, saying that the last straw, the last way to finally get Iran, bring Iran to its knees would be to use the sanction of closing them off from the financial system. We haven't done that yet. If you close them off from the SWIFT system and they can't do any more international financial transactions, that would probably be the last straw. At that point, something would have to give. Now, whether we would do that or not, I don't know. That, that would be, uh, you know, people use the term an act of war very loosely. An act of war, there's no legal definition for it. An act of war is anything that a country would go to war over, and it's subjective. But that would be a very tough uh, last screw to turn. Whether we do that or not, obviously, is going to be up to the you know, White House and Constitution or the Treasury Department. But I think that might just do it. And I think Iran is going to pick a fight with the U.S. before it collapses, right? They're not going to go down right. without swinging, without at least trying to take a, you know, give you a bloody nose, right? Um, That's right. And they've got legions of terrorists. And, and of course, they, they view giving Israel a bloody nose the same as giving us a bloody nose. They've yep. got legions of terrorists. And they've got, uh, you know, they fund Hamas. They fund Hezbollah. They pretty much own Lebanon. Uh they probably have some terrorists over here waiting to do some things yeah. internationally, blow up Israeli consulates or embassies. You know, they're, they're not a force for good. I mean, they don't, they, all they know is terrorism. They don't really pose a military threat. I think the biggest uh, threat they've raised is to try to close the, uh, the, uh, the Persian Gulf uh, through military action. And of course they're the swarming of the boats that they have, uh, seemingly perfected, uh, you know, does pose a threat to U.S. shipping, to uh, commercial shipping, and of course, even to U.S. military craft. But I think uh, President Trump has made pretty clear that if they start with that nonsense, we're not going to let them anywhere near our ships. We're going to shoot them, right. uh, destroy them, which is exactly the right, the right thing to do. How do you see the region right now? Well, um, again, that's a loaded question, man, but I got to throw it out there. You it, know? Is. <laughs> it, it is. I think, uh, I think the, the UAE deal with Israel is, is really something. I mean, that, that is kind of earth shaking geopolitically from, from a regional perspective because it really shows, uh, you know, that's a state that has not had, of course, been a military competitor or enemy of Israel. Uh, but, you know, there's sort of been a, 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 a sub rosa pact between all the Arab states not to uh, engage with Israel until the Palestinian question is solved. Well, you know, the Palestinians, of course, as, as the saying goes, have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And they keep saying no every time an offer, a good deal is offered to them. And I think everybody's just had it with that, including the Arab states, and they're going to move past the Palestinians. And Interestingly enough, and counterintuitively, that, that is the one thing that might finally get the Palestinians to the table as they realize that 
the world is going to pass them by and their own region is going to pass them by unless they 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 decide to extend a hand and at least come to the negotiating table and talk peace so you think that's a that, that's kind of first break first step into uh peace in the region i do i'd like to think so i think everyone would like to think so there'd be nothing better than to see a peaceful Middle East. I don't quite see how you get there. I mean, Lebanon is literally falling apart at the seams. Uh, Iran, of course, is, is falling apart also. But the other states remain very, very scared of Iran, rightly so. Uh, not only its military, but, but its, its terrorist activities. You've got Yemen uh, still as a problem. Uh, so I, I think that the, the geopolitics of the situation are forcing States like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Oman, uh, uh, to to make peace with Israel. It is it, it's the best thing for them geopolitically and economically. And of course, there have been covert uh, uh, relations for years now. Yeah. And I think this is just bringing it out into the open. It's a what good about uh, what about Jordan and, and Egypt? Where do you see them fitting in there? Uh, very tough to, for me to make predictions there. I I. I I don't consider myself an expert on those on those states, and and that's very tough to say. Egypt, uh, of course, with the authoritarian regime that they they've got, things seem to be under control, but but you don't really know. Uh, they've been quiet. Uh, they they've been kind of they have been quiet, right? And that's kind of worrisome. It, it is. They've been cooperating on and off with Palestinians, kind of opening up the route to Gaza and then closing it. It's very hard to predict what they will do next. It really is, but. Given that they have a peace treaty with Israel, it, it's got to be somehow um, uh, a relief in many respects for them to see now other states like the UAE not only having a peace treaty with Israel, but uh, others considering the same. Yep, yep, absolutely. Any parting words, Marine Colonel David Jonas? Just thanks a lot for having me on your show, Ivan. I really appreciate it, and uh, and this is a a great topic. I'm glad you, you're, you're keeping your, your uh, listeners interest in it because it is important. It's not going away. And it's something we need to follow very carefully. And stay well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, the, 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 the issue that I have with this and some of the other, some of the other topics are that whenever you get on TV and I've done TV, you know, geez, you know, uh, I've had TV shows, right. By, and, and you only get these small hits, Right. So you can get in maybe three or four sound bites, um, but you don't really get to sit down and articulate a position like we just did. Great point. That's and, you know, and, and the in this issue, you know, we could probably sit here for another two hours and really break down the, you know, the actual agreement and go through the grab the print it out and go through page by page. And and, you know, like if we were sitting in your classroom and that type of stuff needs to happen somewhere at some point and it's not happening. Um, and I don't think it's a lack of intellectual curiosity of the American people. I think it's a lack of desire of the propaganda machine, the 527 super PAC, you know, that doesn't want to get that information out to the people and expose how piss poor that, that, that agreement was for the American people in the region. No. Exactly. And, and it's a shame that we're into this kind of soundbite mentality because the Iran deal is a complicated thing. It, it's just not, not, not suitable for soundbites if you really want to understand it. Well, I appreciate you coming on and hopefully you'll come back. I mean, we'd love to have you back. Uh, 
Man, you are uh, you're a stud, man. You're a stud. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, Marine Colonel David Jonas, thank you for being on the show. And don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back with more Battleground. Hey, by the way, have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me tell you, let me explain. Let me tell you how it works. There's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast directly. It'll be heard on Spotify, Apple, and just about every other platform out there. So it's very, very easy to use, very user-friendly. And best of all, it lets you monetize that. So everything you need is all in one place. All you have to do is download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's right, General Quarters, all man your battle stations. Today's Friday, August the 28th, and we have the great Robert Arce with us one more time, as is a custom now on Fridays, Law Enforcement Fridays. Hey, Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me on, Elon. Hey, man, uh, you know, it couldn't have been a better day for today. Uh, we saw an awesome convention from the Republicans. We saw a disaster convention from the Democrats last week. We saw the president really deliver his message, his agenda, uh, contrast really, really well between what a Trump America versus a uh, Bernie Biden America looks like. And he closed it up with some stellar fireworks. But back to law enforcement, we saw exactly the problem with the left. They're anarchists, they're, 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 they're about chaos, they're about destruction. And right after the, um, the event, we saw on the streets, you know, these people trying to incite, trying to attack, insult, throwing water bottles, throwing water, throwing who knows what else at people coming out of the event, the disgrace of a mayor in DC uh, did not provide security uh, in order for this to, to go well. Uh, Rand Paul almost, uh, almost killed. Um, man, you're, you're a law enforcement guy. You, you, you've been on the show. You've, we've talked about so many other things and I know we're probably going to talk about a lot of other stuff, but I just want to pick your brain. I want you to explain it to us from a law enforcement perspective as a former Leo, what, what was going on out there? Why is that dangerous? Why, how, how does that need to be handled? Robert, take it away, man. Yeah. And I'm speaking uh, for those who maybe missed some of the other shows. I'm a retired Phoenix uh, police detective. I'm a cop. Uh, early in my career, like all of us, we have to start out on the, in a patrol uniform, we were, were in a patrol car, we worked uniform. Uh, during early in my career, I became part of the tactical response unit, which is our riot police. So back then, it used to be a two-week school. I think it was two or three weeks. Uh, we would get, we would learn all the, we'd get all the gear, learn all the formations, how to deal with angry mobs, with crowds, how to de-escalate. Uh, we would get gas, we'd get the gas vests a whole bit. I'm watching last night, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, how did the mayor or any of the other government, city officials, anybody that was responsible, not plan to have enough personnel 
to deal with this mob. It's not like this was the first time that uh, this happened. It's spreading like a wildfire throughout, especially a lot of these uh, Democrat-controlled cities. And they're going to get somebody hurt or killed. The people are already getting hurt and killed. But it's uh, I'm watching it. Uh, elderly people coming out. You know, they were, they're going uh, watching uh, the President Trump the presentation. And they're walking out and they're just, they're being yelled at, screamed at, they're being intimidated. And there was no police officers to deal with it. You could, you could see they're uh, over, out, outnumbered. And how can you not plan for that? It's, uh, they need to look at this. Somebody needs to do an investigation. Look, how, how did this happen? Uh, they should not be waiting till some totally innocent person walking out of a political event gets, you know, beaten or even killed. And I, I just couldn't understand that. I was watching it. It didn't, as being a riot, former riot cop, uh, you have to have enough personnel to deal with and it, deal immediately with any of the agitators. You allow an agitator, you know, I'm watching, they had a line and they had some of these uh, agitators running up, getting in the officers' faces, pushing the officers back, and the officers didn't have enough people to even respond just to try to be defensive instead of uh, in, a, in a normal police line, you get someone up on the line, they get too close and you see that they're inciting everyone else. You grab him, pull him into the line and you have a rest team waiting behind you and you toss him back. He gets swallowed up, everybody else closes, closes the ranks and you wait for the next one and you move forward. But they didn't have enough people to do that so then what happens is the mob gets encouraged, they become more agitated, and eventually they start striking at the officers and they feel that they can do whatever they want to the citizens that are walking out of this, this event. That, I mean, and then yet the media is telling us that this is mostly peaceful. Um, it's it's mind-boggling. I just don't understand not a plan for that. And it's, uh, it's shameful. It's shameful and it's it, totally negligent. On, on the leadership of the police department or the mayor's office, not the mayor's office, not to allow the police department to do their job.
Hello? Hey, are you there? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was talking to myself. Um, <laughs> so was I. I was like... <laughs> on mute. Uh, so... Oh, okay. So, uh, so I, I guess we'll have like a one minute uh, blank there. But uh, anyways, so I, I was talking about the following is, you know, it's got to be so frustrating for law enforcement, uh, for you as a former law enforcement officer. Um, I'm pretty sure you talk to a lot of your brothers and sisters who are still active Leos, you know, to be sent out there, you know, not prepared, you know, not in riot gear, not enough personnel. Uh, not enough backup with the only thing between you and these psychopaths uh, is a bicycle. And, you know, I, I think it's extremely dangerous. It's irresponsible. And, and um, at what point does law enforcement, you know, disregard and, and do what's right, I guess. Right. Because I know the, the other side of the argument, you know, from liberals are, well, they're just peaceful protesting. They're not doing anything. Well, you know what? Have somebody in your face screaming, yelling, spitting at you, um, throwing stuff at you. There, there's so much. There, there's only so much you can take. A regular person, you know, somebody's doing that to me. I'm gonna punch them in the face. You know, um, you know that's just the way I am. I, I could probably never be in law enforcement because I just don't have that temperament. But I would just beat them over the freaking head with a club. You know. Um, and, and that's got to take such restraint and such discipline for law enforcement not to do that. And I don't think people get that. People don't understand that. And they vilify law enforcement. And then when there's this, you know, some shooting or something happens or somebody gets a shit kicked out of them, you know, they talk about police abuse, but they never take all this stuff into consideration. And I want you to really talk about that, Robert, because people need to understand you know, that there's so much more involved that is not just, you know, that, that police officers are not out there hunting black on our men. You know, it's just not happening. Right. And there's a lot of stuff that happens and I'm getting pissed off because it bothers me. Right. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and nobody's really talking about this and articulating all this stuff that you, that, that you, you have the ability to do now. Right. Is right. what's real. You know, what is reality? Tell us about that. I mean, walk us through this is a funny a perspective I got to see when I was still a, a uniform cop. Uh, I worked as a uniform cop. I worked the same neighborhood I grew up in, and I grew up in inner city. I grew up in a uh, primarily Latino uh, black area. It, I lived right next to the housing projects, and back then uh, the projects were like were segregated fairly segregated. There was one housing project that was primarily, well, they were known as the black projects. There was the other projects one block away, they were called the Mexican projects. And I ran around to Mexican projects as a kid and my school was right next door. So as a cop, I start working in the neighborhood. I work it and, uh, you know, it was, I, when we'd work the black projects, I had a black partner. We'd go into the black projects and the my black partner was just mocked. He, it, they were brutal to him. And whenever we had to go hands-on with bad people, because there's a lot of good people that live in those projects. They're there for whatever reason, and they're trying to uplift themselves, or some are elderly, and that's where they're going to that's where they're going to live to the end of their lives. But uh, my black partner, <laughs> eventually, he just said, "I'm leaving the I'm leaving the walking beat because we're walking in the projects." 
And a lot of the uh, citizens in the black project would tell them, why is there not enough black cops here? Well, he used to tell them, you guys give me more crap. I, I, it's just to the point where I, I can't even deal with this anymore. And, and I, he goes, I came here thinking I was going to be here. I wanted to help out. You know, I understand. I, Jerry lived there, too, as a kid. I'd go over to the Mexican projects, and I'd get the same treatment from the bad people in the Mexican projects. And, uh, but you just learn to deal with it, because at the end, you know that overwhelmingly most of the people there, are, they just want to live a peaceful life. Right. Six months, they, I go up to North Phoenix, where it's primarily white, upper middle class. And I get up there, and when I'm first driving around in my patrol car, people are waving at me. People are coming up to me when I'm out on a call, <laughs> families and bringing their kids and wanting to shake my hand. And that almost never happened when I worked down south. And it almost, I almost used to think that it was uh, like they were, it was candid cameras. Somebody was messing with me. Yeah, or or, 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 or <laughs> there's some kind of bait there. Yes, it's a bait. <laughs> down south, it would be like somebody would, I would be in a store out on a call and somebody would point at me and go, tell their kid, see that, see that cop right there? If you don't behave, he's going to beat you with that stick. Then you wonder why these kids are growing up being afraid of us. You shouldn't say that. And then I would go up north and kids, families are coming up and kids are coming up and thanking me for my service. And, and it was like, wow, you know, it, it's, you would see that. I was up north for six months. I got in one fight. It was a biker. Uh, try to stop him. He takes off. He runs for me and I get to fight with him. He had a felony warrant. One fight in six months. I go down south where I came from and working in the projects. Uh, we used to say the projects were where if you wanted to get your authority challenge on a nightly basis, that's where you go. Because you're going to go hands-on. You have to arrest someone for something. And, and, and it's like, and like I said, I come from there. I come from this neighborhood. And it's like people would not apply or they would run. Uh, when I was an old, you know, I was, I was a young kid. Uh, it was, I think one time we had three foot pursuits, me and my partner, three foot pursuits in one shift because everybody ran from you. And you go up north, everybody complies. Uh, like I said, only had one fight in six months. I was up north, one homicide in the six month period, it was a domestic violence during my shifts. I, I transferred back down south, and I remember we had like uh, two shootings in what, just in my beat area, in one, in one shift, we had, I think, three homicides in one week. So what happens is a cop, when you work between north and south zone in Phoenix, at least in Phoenix, that rookie cop working south zone in one year, He's going to have so much experience in dealing, you know, seeing dead bodies, dealing with people challenging authority. And I think eventually, as a cop, you learn how to de-escalate if you're smart, because sooner or later, if you try to fight everybody that wants to fight you, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. And you're going to get complaints. So you can't fight everybody that wants to fight you. Now, you try to de-escalate, or you go hands-on. You learn how to go hands-on once you get them cuffed. It's over. It's not personal, right. and uh, but it's uh, I, I, I'm telling. It was an eye opener for me, and you know, I I grew up. I grew up in the area down south, or down. I grew up downtown, and the difference 
in how people treated us. And like I said, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good people living in those neighborhoods that cannot get out of those areas. And then that's where we go back to the original argument I think I mentioned before when we talked about the community of policing with Jeff, is that when these politicians wanted to fund the police, the people they hurt the most are those low-income citizens that can't get out of those areas. They're stuck there. And if you start defunding police, all you're doing is it's you're allowing these criminals to run amok yeah. and terrorize people, especially once the sun goes down. Yeah. And that's sad because uh, people should feel, should be able to go out at night and walk their dogs or go out for a walk in the neighborhood. And in some of these neighborhoods, you cannot do that. Once the sun goes down, you're stuck inside your house because these absurd policies, because some, some politician who lives in a gated community, the mayor who has armed Phoenix police officers protecting them, you know, they don't deal with that. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not a good deal. But uh, going back to the, the, the problem with these, with these mobs, when you're facing these mobs, I'm telling you, we're human. You see, these people are coming up in your face. You know, the, not the cop, but the, the person inside of you wants to punch them, but you can't. And today with all the cameras, obviously you can't do this because they will, the media will take something and they'll edit and they'll, it's your response. And like I said, as a cop, we're not, a lot of people think this. Somebody comes up, gets on you. Once, once you go hands-on, they're yours. Uh, I remember early on in my career as, as a young cop, uh, me and an old partner went out to a, uh, a bar fight. And we went out and there's a guy who doesn't want to cooperate. And I was a brand new rookie. I was with an older, with a, like an older guy, a veteran. And we go hands-on, but then, and we, we get in a fight with a guy, but the veteran cop, it was real busy. Then we just like, after it was over, the guy calmed down, we let him go. And the guy leaves, he calls in a complaint. And I remember my boss, my sergeant calls me and he says, listen, once you go hands-on and you have to get physical, he's yours. We cannot go around grabbing somebody and, you know, rough them up in the process that we're trying to calm him down or restrain him. Once you go hands-on, he's yours, because then they call in a complaint. So you learn. So when you're up on this line, when you see these people coming up, you have an agitator. If you have an agitator, obviously you can push them back. You can push back. You can push back. But once you decide, I'm going to grab onto this guy, pull him into the line, you don't let them go after that. Once you grab on, pull him into the line, you hand him to an arrest team, he's yours. And the reason you want to do that, you don't want to allow these uh, agitators within the crowd to get everybody else riled up because it's just going to rile everybody up and they're going to feel they can do whatever they want. Once you start snagging some of these uh, agitators, not everybody in that mob is going to be as, as dedicated or, or ready to give, go to jail usually you're going to have people start backing off once you start seeing uh you grab it on because you see it during these videos some of these uh pro some of these rioters are yelling and screaming and when cops go grab on they start crying they start yelling i didn't do anything i didn't do nothing i didn't do nothing well it's too late they want they think that if they cry you're going to let them go so it's uh it's it's you have to keep your composure 
when you're and it's hard. Yeah, that's that's got to be so hard to do, right? Yes, it's very have somebody hard. right in your face, screaming, yelling, spitting, throwing water at you. You know, spitting in my not, day. How do you not just grab your club and just beat them <laughs> over the freaking head? You know, in my day, if somebody would have spit on us, we're gonna go hands on. If somebody would have tried to, if they're close enough, throwing something at us, uh, we're gonna go hands on. Or you're gonna watch. You're gonna have because a lot of times in, in these type of situations, you have spotters somewhere up high watching. And then a lot of times what you'll see is this happens in Phoenix. Uh, I know the, the, some of the supervisors now, there were some of the junior officers that I worked with in gangs as I was leaving. I've been retired for 15 years. So uh, after I retired, I mentioned before, I did 10 years overseas on uh, overseas contracts. Right. But the guys right now that are doing, uh, the riot guys that are working downtown, the part of this, this unit that does this, these type of operations, one of them is a, uh, uh, two of them are supervisors that were young gang cops when I was still in the gang squad. Uh, they will set up spotters, and sometimes it's, it's better to just keep an eye on some of these agitators, follow them from above, and then when they get away from the mob, you have plainclothes guys or you have, uh, like what you've seen on TV where there's guys yeah, driving on marks and, and, cars. Just, and you pick them up. Yeah. yeah, you pick them up, you snag them, and you... And, you know, they made it seem, of course, the media is like, well, there's, there's these, they act like they're going to be taken off and executed or something. Right. right. You're doing that to not to prevent the confrontation where you're going to have a large confrontation with a mob. So you pull up, you sneak up, you ninja up on them, you grab them, throw them in the car, and you're gone. And now you're not having to fight the mob. And, uh, and it's like you have arrest teams that do this. And I was able to work, uh, uh, Pope John Paul, when he came to Phoenix years ago, I think this is like probably late 80s, early 90s, yeah. he came and we had a massive amount. We had spotters up on buildings. We had SWAT officers. It was a massive, massive operation security-wise. And then later on in my career, I also worked uh, dignitary protection. I was in the Organized Crime Unit or Bureau, and we used to do dignitary protection. So we worked the presidential debates back in the day when it was uh, Bush against Kerry. We worked with the uh, Capitol Police from DC and the Secret Service. And we had our own school that we would go to. So sometimes we, uh, we, we, also, we did protection for Supreme Court justices that came to Scottsdale to a conference, uh, different politicians that we would uh, work alongside uh, Capitol Police or other dignitaries. Uh, so you learn how to protect and even in plain clothes, how to uh, how to try and be uh, a little bit ninja while you're doing it, but you have to react. You have to react, and then we would have uniform guys providing that outer uh, security barrier for us. Hey, Robert, so, how dangerous is it, you know, to continue to allow what these mayors are are allowing to happen? I mean, they're they're, they're not. You know they're they're putting citizens at risk. They're putting law enforcement at risk, and I don't know. I mean, is it that they're trying? I mean, we read a stupid story about these anarchists suing the city of um, of Seattle, I think, because they're saying that it was too expensive to riot because they had to buy all this riot gear now that 
the police was wearing riot gear. Um, it, it's, it's just stupidity. But how dangerous is it to continue to use the same strategy versus just shutting it down? You know, when I watch this, it's almost as if they're doing this on purpose. Are they trying to create uh, lawlessness in their cities for political reasons? Uh, or I, I just don't understand because what you're doing, your frontline your front personnel, your cops that are all on the front lines, they're getting nailed by frozen water bottles, by batteries, by all kinds of things that are, that are being thrown at. And... Uh, in Phoenix, you're, I talked to the, the, the riot guys here working in Phoenix. You're getting guys when they had a couple, I think when they first had the, they had the first protest that turned into a rioting mob. The first day they did it here recently, uh, our mayor, our chief of police, let them do it. They did some damage. After that, they said, all right, no more. They put their foot down and they're not allowing it to happen. But, uh, there, I think if you do not do anything, people, the protesters or the rioters will start showing up. And then this is the other thing. You show up to one of these events, to me, you're not a peaceful protester if you're showing up in riot gear. <laughs> you're showing up with your backpack, you got your faces covered in those backpacks. They got all kinds of goodies made to destroy or hurt people. And you start seeing this, uh, and the mayors, the mayors are not allowing, are not allowing the police to do their job. And, uh, and then this other thing, well, there's insurance. Why, why can we not burn this building down? They got insurance anyway. I just, I don't understand uh, how these mayors are failing to, to step up and do their job. But then again, the citizens are, the citizens are putting these people in office. And the ones who suffer are these business owners that put their, their life savings, their hard work, their blood, their sweat, everything into these businesses and watching them destroyed because of inaction from these uh, politicians that have caved in to this mob. And if that was their business, they, they would not allow that to happen, you would think. But uh, I think if you watch the news or you watch what's happening, failure to act on this is just encouraging more and more of this activity to spread. And like I said, it's not, there's no coincidence it's not happening at the level you're seeing in these democratic cities because uh, you have uh, mayors. Here in Phoenix, we got a hardcore leftist mayor, hardcore leftist mayor. She's part of the La Raza movement. Oh, my God. But, but it's, we're in Phoenix, and here in Phoenix, they're not going to put up with that. So um, she sides with them. Uh, she's, she's insane, but she's, she's, they're still allowing our police to do their job for the most part. And, uh, thank God. But if you go to some of these other cities, uh, they're jumping on board on defunding us. Uh, let's pull us back. Uh, I'm telling you, it's going to be, you, we, I mean, I remember New York back in the seventies, the murder rate, some of these big cities had. We're going to start returning back to that. If you look at New York, what's happening, uh, the lawlessness, it just, if you allow lawlessness to grow, it just spreads like a wildfire. And you're, the, what will happen is crime will start going along with it. You'll start having some of these homicide rates, murder rates, unsolved murder rates, 
because you just don't have enough people to investigate these. And, and now you're having it spill out to the suburbs, right? Yes, yes, yes. And then where, uh, where they're going out there and banging and making noise and threatening people, come out, mm -hmm. don't sleep, all this stuff. Uh, it's getting pretty crazy. And I'm, I don't know if you saw the news um, yesterday, or the day before. So if, if you didn't pick this one up, it's going to piss you off tremendously. But the um, legislature in, in Virginia passed a bill. Um, I think it passed the Senate um, that no longer makes, you know, assaulting a police officer a felony. Wow. That's crazy. Now, let me, let me explain something that happened to us with yep. the RPD. Yep. Remember I told you, when I worked on the walking beat for city housing projects, uh, back then, the problem we had in the city housing projects were street-level curbside drug, drug dealers. Yeah. So what you would have is you would have a street corner where you could have 10 to 20 street dealers holding crack cocaine and there's curbside service. So you would have people from, from not from the area knew that that's where you could buy crack. Yep. You pull up, uh, people would rush your car, you buy your crack, you drive away. Us as walking beat cops, we would, we were in uniform. So we would have, we would hide in at nighttime and have to sneak up on them. We would set up like, uh, we put some officers on one side and we would come in because we know they're going to run into the projects and we'd have foot pursuits everywhere. Well, we'd get in fights. People would fight us. We'd get assaulted. So what started happening is complaints from, oh, I think it was an organized effort. They would start making complaints against us. But uh, the, the main thing is we would get assaulted and we would charge someone for aggravated, any assault in Arizona against a police officer is considered aggravated. It's a felony. Yep. So any, so it's an aggravated assault police officer. So what happened is when they started making complaints that we were being heavy handed, they started pulling numbers on us and they're like, wait a minute, officer artist has been assaulted 17 times in this, this year. So he's been assaulted 17 times. So they're saying, well, maybe he has a problem talking to people. And they started looking at everybody in our squad and everybody had been assaulted multiple, multiple times. So we get warned and they said, listen, if you guys keep getting assaulted, maybe there's something wrong the way you are. <laughs> this is from the, the, the top floor of the police department who sit behind the desk and they're not out in the projects getting punched and kicked and every, spit on and everything else. So what we started doing, we would get in a foot chase, catch somebody, get in a fight. And as if, if they didn't get a real good shot, didn't hurt us or anything, we weren't charging people with assaulting us just so that it wouldn't look bad. We were only saving it for the worst cases that we were being assaulted. That's how insane that was because they, were, they had one case with one of our guys that they eventually said, hey, you've been assaulted over 20 times. Maybe it's the way you talk to people. This guy was, he was one of the best cops I ever worked with. He was a hard charger with the bad people. The good people in the projects loved him. And they ended up pulling him out and, and took him out of the projects because somebody on the, in the top floor of the police department decided that he had an attitude problem. That's why he was getting assaulted. Yet this is coming from people that were, were working behind a desk and had not been on the street for years. Yeah. So that's what it led us to do. We, start, we would get assaulted. We were not charging them with assault. We were charging them with the original, the original charge we had with them just so that it wouldn't look bad and, and, and that's, that shouldn't happen. 
And so what we're doing is that we're allowing someone to assault us and they're not being punished for it. Yeah. That's amazing, man. It, yeah. It's crazy. And these Virginia liberals, you know, passing this law that not only includes law enforcement officers, but first responders. Yep. So, you know, uh, paramedics, firemen, includes judges. Um, you know, the, what, what they're really looking for is lawlessness, right? Yes. It's like almost some sci-fi movie that we used to see grow, you know, back in the 80s, we'd see these sci-fi movies of what the U.S. was going to look like in, you know, 50 years, 100 years. Well, we're there now. We're, it's bizarre world we're living in. And who would have ever thought that, this, that we would be here at this point? And uh, it's, it's going to lead, people are going to get hurt. People are going to get killed over this. And it's going to be very hard to recruit people to want to be cops. Uh, I think I told you off, off before we started, when I, was, uh, when I joined the police academy, I think we had 52 that started the police academy in my academy class. We graduated 32. At the 20-year mark, when you get your magic pension for life, we had 14 of us standing. So 14 out of 52 that started the academy got made it to 20 years. Because, you know, the work is not for everybody. Some people, uh, most of them, I think, left just because they decided it wasn't for them. But uh, in training, obviously, we lose a lot of people that just weren't cut out for the job. And right now, uh, like Phoenix PD has massive openings. But uh, I'm being told it's hard to fill those spots. Plus, with we have so many officers retiring. Uh, our department uh, lost a lot of officers due to the drop, the deferred retirement option program. And we were losing, you know, a lot of officers every month. So they're having trouble just keeping up with nutrition, with people leaving or people retiring. And uh, they had cut us back because due to budget problems, and now we've been trying to catch up. You need enough officers out there to keep the citizens safe. Uh, and you have to, right? I mean, if, yes. you don't, if you don't have law enforcement, when you're in trouble, who, do you, who are you going to call? Yes, because you know what happens here, too, is that you'll have an, a police officer. I don't know what's going to happen now because of the, the attitude, especially from our city hall, yeah. uh, the media. You get an officer killed in Phoenix. This would always happen. The officer was riding by himself, and it would be this outcry for, we need to have two officers in each car. Well, it just can't happen. It's just, we're just not on the police officers. You learn how to back each other up in the city. In the big city, you have a lot of officers in an area, but you get to some of the bigger beat areas where, uh, where I work downtown or just east of downtown, it was a smallest precinct by, by size with the largest amount of police officers because it was such a high crime area. So when I was working, I could, I could ask for a backup. And, I, and if I was screaming for help, I could hear the sirens already close by. Here they come. Uh, there's always somebody around. But if you work in a precinct, your backup might be 20 minutes away wow. because you're so far spread out. And this is, I mean, and I can't imagine what the state troopers and the county guys do. Can you believe that? State trooper? Oh, my God. Yes. They're, they're out on their own. Yes, they're, out, they're totally out on their own. They have to deal with things totally different. I have a lot of respect for what they do. Yeah, but the, the thing is. Those, is that, those got, oh, man. Yes. So what happens is that when, they would there'd be an outcry. We need more officers. Uh, we need more officers. We can't have officers riding by themselves. On a busy night, on a Friday or Saturday night, when you're a patrolman, some of these precincts are so busy, there's 100, 
and 20 calls holding, you're just going from one call to another and you're rolling on a family fight by yourself. You're just, there's calls that you're saying the dispatcher is advising you. There's nobody else available and it's your judgment call. You have to decide, well, I'll advise. You're rolling on dangerous calls totally by yourself. Well, then an officer gets killed and suddenly the media is in love with us. Our politicians are in love with us because nobody loves a police funeral more than these liberal politicians and our media because our funerals make great photo ops for their ratings. And as soon as our funeral is over, they go back to hating us. And that's just the way it is. So that's a great segue, right, uh, into my next question, which was, and I asked it earlier, you know, within a whole bunch of uh, convoluted questions. When do the law enforcement officers say enough? When do they rebel? Do they just walk away? Or do they rebel and just not listen to elected officials and just sit there and, and say, we're going to do our job? Screw you. What, what, what happens? What, what's going to happen? Because it can't stay the way it is, right? Yes. yes. You, can't, I, I, you can't sit there and say, well, go stand out there with your bicycle and, uh, you know, and, and face this mob that's dressed in riot gear that's got, <laughs> that's throwing bricks at you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, cops are people, right? At some point, yes. they're going to grab that club and beat beat somebody over the head with it, or or yeah. they're going to come want to. <laughs> and say, you know what, I'm not showing up, or or we're all going to go out there, but we're dressed in riot gear. We don't give a shit what you say, and we're going to take every. We're going to put this down once and for all. I mean, what what happens? I mean, I, it, something's got to give, right? It can't stay yeah. the way it is. Yes, you know the thing is, is that go okay. The you can tell every now and then I've seen some of the video in Portland where it seems like every now and then they're allowing the Portland cops to like, all right, let's take care of business. Um, and they're 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 doing what cops should be doing. They're going into the crowd, they're grabbing people, they're pushing them back instead of being uh backing up, backing up, backing up. Uh they're in they got their gear on. I you know, you look at the I, I watch a lot of Twitter comments from non-law enforcement people and people are saying they should just, you know, they should walk away. Well, you get a cop that's been doing the job for 12, 15 years. It's hard to walk away from that because you're close to your pension and you got to think of your family. And is and I've, I had a buddy of mine that, I, that he worked for me in Iraq. He took some time off, uh, did the contracting work, went back to his agency. He called me probably a month ago yeah. and said, I can't date. I can't do it anymore. I quit. I just walked away. I walked away and he had, oh, I'm guessing 14 years on. Oh. But he worked in an agency that didn't pay a lot. Uh, a lot of the agencies, smaller agencies, especially in the South, don't pay a lot of money. That's why a lot of them are going to do the contracting work. Yeah. And I felt really bad for him because he said uh, he got himself a job working, I think, at a... Uh, a power company doing security, but he's starting all over. His, the, yep. the pension, uh, early on in my career, uh, you know, you hit a certain point where you start thinking, I wonder, I had thought of maybe jumping over to a federal agency. Yep. And, but I thought, okay, I already have this much time in. Uh, at 20 years, I'm guaranteed a pension for the rest of my life. And if I decide to stick around longer, 
you start seeing that magic mark and it's it's hard to walk away i mean you it's, it's a tough decision i could understand if some officers finally say i've had enough and i just can't do this anymore for my sanity i'm gonna get myself in trouble i'm gonna get myself killed but uh it's a tough decision for uh, a police officer to decide to walk away especially after you have so much time invested and and frankly a lot of us it, i work for uh I worked for some bad bosses during my career. I worked for some great bosses. And I had another non-LEO friend tell me, well, I wouldn't do this if there was a, a mayor or whatever that didn't back me. I had bad chiefs. I had good chiefs. It never changed the way I worked. No. You know, in the back of your mind, you think about it. But I mean, you think a little bit about it. But I just, I, I, as aggressive as I always was, I, I continued to push forward. And uh, just do the, do, do the right thing. Do the right thing and uh, the, let everything else take care of itself. But I mean, I think when I look at what's going on today where they're not, the, these, it comes from the top. It comes from a city manager or a mayor, a governor or whatever you're talking about. And it comes down and, and a lot of these chiefs of police that are put into these positions now, a lot of them are, are they're just puppets. They, they're gonna, if, if you're a chief of police, that disobeys your mayor or disobeys your city manager and you're not going to do what they tell you you're going to be known as a former chief of police you're not going to be there much longer because they're going to get rid of you and they're going to put a yes sir yes ma'am man or or woman to run that police department and uh it's the other thing too when, when you have somebody that climbs a ladder they start climbing the ladder there's there's different career paths i wanted to be an investigator I took a different career path than somebody who joined the PD and decided they wanted to become a chief of police or an assistant chief or, or a commander or whatever. So the career path that someone is gonna climb the ladder is a political career path. They might work the street for a little bit, but eventually they're gonna to have to get into some of these admin jobs, being a, an assistant to a chief or, and climbing community relations, and there's a bunch of boxes you've got to check off. And you have to have a lot of luck because it's brutal for them too. As they're climbing that ladder, they gotta, they gotta attach themselves onto somebody that's rising the ladder and that person's gonna pull them up. And if you pick the wrong guy and that guy falters, you falter with them. It's, you know, I've seen it, I've seen it in my career. I was on the investigative side. I wanted to do investigations. I love doing investigations. So my career path was as soon as I had enough time to leave patrol, I used my Spanish. I, I wanted to go to one undercover unit. I wanted to work gangs. Once I got there, I thought, hey, I want to work some of these homicide investigations. And then eventually I wanted to work wiretaps. So I started working. So I have a different, guys like myself had a different career path than the guy that's climbing that ladder. And the guy that climbs that ladder, as they get higher to the top, they have to become politicians. And Every now and then you get some chiefs of police that are outstanding. I got a really good friend of mine that was a partner of mine. We were partners in gangs and he's now leading an agency, a large agency. Nice. Uh, he's, he was a cop. He understood it. He was not a guy that sat behind a desk, but eventually he had to take that career path yeah. and do the political side. And uh, he's an outstanding guy. But for most part, you get guys that climb up these ladders that are so far removed from the guy that's doing the investigation, the guy that's working the street, they, 
we're totally different. We're like totally different animals. Hey, and, hey, uh, Robert, um, so advice, what's your advice to the American people today? Not politically, because I think it's pretty obvious we, uh, we, we support the president and we're going to vote for the president. So that, that, that's a given on this show. Your advice as a former law enforcement officer, your advice as a security expert today, um, do you go out? Do you not go out? If you do go out, where, where do you go out? Where do you not go out? What do you look for? What should you be aware of? Um, you know, I know the typical stuff, you're aware of your surroundings, have an exit plan, et cetera, et cetera. But now today in this mob mentality, you see these videos of people out there having dinner and all of a sudden this mob shows up out of nowhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm gonna drop an F-bomb. Robert, what the fuck do we do with this? <laughs> yes, that's when, when we watch, when I watch this going on and I'm sitting here thinking, well, I wanna believe it's not gonna happen here in Phoenix, but I mean, I'm sure it can, it can happen. It can happen anywhere. And I think you have to be smart. You're, part, of, part of me, you, I watch this and I think, you know what? I'm gonna punch somebody in the face. <laughs> But if you're outnumbered, yeah, you're, you're outnumbered. You you have to be smart, and you start seeing something like this. But I mean, I'm telling you what, there's no way I would have done throwing my fist up in the air. You know what? I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. And uh, maybe I'm just going to get up, I walk away, let's leave, let's let's get out of here. Uh, and I, that's where I think the problem you have. You don't have any police responding to this, and what you're going to have, you're going to have someone's going to snap. Someone's going to, now I don't leave my house unless, I mean, I, I conceal carry everywhere I go. So I feel safe to a certain point, but if you got a giant mob, obviously you can't, you know, you're not going to start uh, pulling a weapon out. But uh, if I have to defend myself or my family or anybody I'm with, you know, I, I know what I have to do. It's just usually in a situation like that, it's best to avoid that confrontation and get away. Just you got an exit point, get away. And uh, yeah, get, go, get up and go inside, right? Yep, go inside, uh, go inside, wait till the mob leaves. Uh, but it's just, you know, I, I, I'm sitting here watching this and I think, I don't, I, the, my first response is who raised these kids? Who raised these people? Right. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, I, I just, I don't understand. A lot of these uh, are, uh, they're like traveling hobos that go from one protest to another. You know, they grab a guitar and they hit the road and, and later on I see them out on Mill Avenue or somewhere by Arizona State University yep. selling beads on the sidewalk or playing their guitar for spare change, eating out of garbage cans. So uh, it's, I don't know, I, I don't know who, who ends up raising these people. And we just, you just got to be alert. You got to, if you start seeing a mob form, just, just get away from that mob and uh, get away uh if there is some type of protest in your area, uh, I would stay away from any of those restaurants. And I live in the suburbs. I live, I live outside of uh, Phoenix, uh, 30 miles outside of Phoenix. And I just, you know, who knows? I, don't, I can't see that happening out here, but I could see it happening downtown or down in the art, arts district where those type of people hang out. So, yeah, just it's, it's, it's crazy times we're living in today. Totally. Yeah, so I remember, uh, you know, Florida, I was down there for 20 years. Uh, obviously, we had the great, probably one of the greatest governors in the history of the country and Jeb Bush. Um, 
and and you know during that era you know he passed stay in your ground um obviously that law is not applicable to everywhere in the, around around the country but what, right. what is typical rules of engagement i mean if you if you have a concealed carry if you feel threatened i've, I've always said and you know, my, my father always taught me as well. He said, you never pull out your gun unless you're going to use it. Um, you never pull it out to intimidate somebody. The only time you pull it out is if you're going to freaking shoot somebody. Exactly. Exactly. Because if you start, if you're going to pull out a handgun, just to try to intimidate someone, <laughs> you got some knuckleheads that are going to say, shoot me. And they're going to come forward. The, uh, and if you got a mob, with most moms, you, 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 we saw this in the video that we saw in, in uh, Wisconsin. Yep. In Wisconsin, shots are fired, people start running. Yep. Because even as us, as cops, uh, I remember going to, I was a gang cop, and you would have these after hour parties where these gang members would get a warehouse and set up these illegal parties, and there'd Correct. be hundreds of people. We'd show up as, as a, you know, a couple of cops. Four, four of us, six of us walking up, shots are being fired now. And there's a stampede running in our direction. I mean, a stampede. Well, we're cops. We can't run with them. We've got to run towards the gunfire. We're running towards the gunfire. And now we have a guy standing there with a gun. And we have a couple of guys down. And shots are fired, even with some thug crowds. They're going to run. Maybe some other thugs will pull out guns. You're going to have an exchange of gunfire. But if you're going to pull it out, pull out your firearm you need to it's it's last resort when you get there you better be ready to uh, uh and you better you better know what you're doing you better know that you're you're in the lawful uh you're you're obeying all the laws that you have to be able to defend yourself and just but I mean, if this mob is coming after you and they're clearly gonna hurt you they're gonna kill you they're gonna kick you they're gonna you know possibly damage you for life or your family um even if they are unarmed I don't know what the legality is on you being able to just shoot them. Well, What's oh, no, oh, yeah, it's it's going to be, it's up to you. But the thing is, unarmed doesn't mean that that this is, you know, you hear this all the time. An uh, unarmed person uh, was shot. And uh, we had we had a female officer, uh, we had a Phoenix PD, uh, two officers go to a, uh, go to a prowler call. They're out of a prowler call. And... Uh, they're, they catch a guy. They're, there's a prowler in the backyard looking for somebody's windows in the middle of the night. And as they start talking to him, turns out uh, the guy has a warrant. When they go to go hands on him, uh, the fight's on. They yeah. try to taser him. Uh, the guy grabs the male officer's holster and he's trying to pull his weapon out. And the officer is fighting with this guy, trying to retain his weapon. Yep. And he's screaming. The female officer... At that point, uh, she was a lot smaller. She put, drew her weapon, put her, uh, or put her weapon up to the guy's head, pulled one round, and kills him on the spot. Wow. Legit shooting. Yeah. Because He's she says, hey, yeah, he was going to take my partner's gun. He was going to shoot both of us. And it turned out the guy was a murder suspect from a prior case. And they didn't know that because, you know, they had no idea. And... But it's just, you have to be able to justify that you know, you're fearful for your life. And uh, just because somebody is not armed doesn't mean they can't hurt or kill That's you. That's exactly or mom. right. That's yeah. exactly right. And right. You know, we saw that Wisconsin guy, the guy's running and the crowd is chasing him. And 
he turns around and he shoots some guy and he takes a piece of the guy's arm off. But after a close look at the video, the guy had a gun in his hand. Yes, yes. The guy had a gun in his hand. And that kid, I'm like, I was reading some of the comments that he shot. I was like, one of my cop friends shot me a message and goes, oh, great. Now everyone's going to expect us to shoot a gun out of somebody's hand or something. But that was a lucky shot. I'm sure he wasn't intending to shoot. He just cranked around off and happened to hit him in the arm. Yeah. And uh, the gun goes flying out. But it was, uh, I'm telling you, quick thinking on that kid. Uh, yeah. yeah, he, I who mean, knows what happened. Arm. He could have shot him square in the chest, you know, in that right. range. He would have put him down. Yeah, and I think he was just probably going for center mass and he just happened to hit him in the arm. Yeah. I don't think he went for the arm. It just uh, yeah. it was a lucky shot for the bad guy that he didn't take a center mass shot because he would have been done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I think if you're surrounded by by people and you see that they're going to hurt you, um, at that point, I mean, at least I, I, you know, I guess I would face jail. I don't, I don't know if I would or not, but I wouldn't think about that if it, if it's protecting myself and my family. I'd put a couple of rounds in those bastards, you know. Yeah. What have you seen? You've seen that this these Antifa groups they attack people and they knock them to the ground and they're kicking them in the head. You know what? I'm I'm not uh, I'm not going to be the new, the next YouTube sensation victim. Right. Yep. And at that point, you know what? I'm going to double tap somebody, and if anybody else is standing, all right. But it's uh, you have That's to make exactly right, and you got to double tap somebody, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. Damn, everybody! They're going to run like cockroaches. Right. You know they're 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 they're, they're going to take off, and and anybody that that doesn't, you put him down, you know, and then you worry about. Then, then you worry about getting a lawyer and you figure it out. But, um, you know, I, I think it's going to happen, Robert. And I'm not, I'm not encouraging this, but I think it's going to happen. I mean, how many more people are going to sit by idle and have the shit kicked out of them, you know, probably killed or damaged, brain damage for life or, or, or something? Or, Man, you're a dad. If that happened to your to your to, to your kids, what the hell would you do? I know what you would do. I know what I would do. Right, right. Because it's the thing is, is that we we see the videos, and then it's a mob mentality. Yep. Once somebody gets knocked to the ground, it's other, a other yes, it's a shark feeding frenzy, and people that probably would have not jumped in initially, that would have been too afraid to go fist city with you. Now yep. they see you on the ground. They're gonna start jumping on top of your head, kicking you, and they're gonna they're gonna pose for the camera so they can be on camera kicking some you know somebody in the face or ever and by that time you're out you yep. can't let that happen and uh <laughs> and i would imagine that's personal that that, that that's got to be categorized as self-defense if you pull out a gun and shoot the guy right yes you pull out the gun hopefully they run if they don't if they come then okay then you have to make your decision <laughs> i a funny story of people that didn't know what to do with it. I was in Haiti for uh, two years. I ran an anti-kidnapping team down there. Yeah. And the United Nations was working there. And there were some, um, some Africans that a lot of these Africans that were cops that were being sent down there to work with the Haitians, they never had a weapon in their country and they got trained to use a weapon and they were driving around. There was a protest going on and a mob surrounded their, their truck. And instead of like, all right, if, if there's a mob around my car and they're going to start trying to break in and pull me out, I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to slowly edge out and eventually they're going to get out of my way. I'm not going to let them pull me out of my truck or my car. Well, they didn't do that. 
And instead, as they started breaking windows, they're armed. They're in uniform. They're police, UN police. They jumped out of the car or their truck and started running as a mob was chasing them. And they later said they thought the mob was going to disarm them. So they pulled their weapons out of their holster and they threw them on a roof of a car of a house as they continued running and they got beat to a pulp. And they were armed. They didn't they were afraid to use their own firearm for their own protection. And they were caught and beat by a mob. They're lucky they weren't killed. Wow. And yet they threw their handguns on top of a roof of a house as they were running. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> and that's the UN. The UN is, the Haitians, the Haitian police resented that the UN was sending cops from countries that, that weren't, the Haitians used to say, we're more advanced than them. Why are you sending these people to train us? Oh my, oh my God. God. Yeah, the, that's another story for another time. Absolutely, brother. Hey, we appreciate it, man. It's always great to have you. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Robert Arce. Where can they find you, man? Where do they follow um, you? They can follow me on Twitter at Robert middle initial R, last name A-R-C-E, Arce, and I'm on Twitter, and uh, they, I, they can also find me on LinkedIn. Awesome, brother. Well, I appreciate it, man. We'll see you next weekend. Thanks a lot for having me. Have a great weekend. All right, you too, bro. All right, take care. Thanks, man. And don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with some more Battleground. Hey, welcome back. Hope everyone had a great, great time uh, this week watching the Republican convention. Wow, we... Uh, we certainly kicked the Democrats' ass. They absolutely sucked. They had a Zoom convention. They're still hiding Biden. He hasn't come out since then. Um, they're a disaster. We saw Kamala Harris try and come out yesterday with her bogus uh, preempting of the uh, the Trump speech and, and, and the evening and fell flat on her face, her typical crap of race baiting, which means they have no arguments. They have nothing. They are a bunch of radicals. They're crazies. They're Marxists and they need psychiatrists. That's what we need to do. Maybe we should uh, talk to Nancy Pelosi and put a psychiatrist bill into that uh, Corona relief package. Make sure these bastards get the uh, mental health help that they need. But anyways, hope you liked the show today. Uh, two great guests, um, retired jet, uh, Colonel Marine Corps Colonel uh, David Jonas, one of the top, top guys in the world on nuclear uh, proliferation, uh, breaking it down on the, on the Iran deal, uh, why it was a terrible thing, what he sees going on with the region, how he sees Iran playing forward, um, obviously voting for Trump as well. And then our good friend, Robert Arce, former law enforcement, narcotic specialist, uh, you name it, uh, talking about a whole bunch of stuff, especially um, how to stay safe, how to be careful, and how not to become a victim. So if you don't have a concealed carry, I recommend you go get one. And if you can't get one, then get a, uh, get a weapon, have one in your house, make sure you're able and willing to protect yourself. And we will see you next week. Have a great weekend, guys. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.